Today, I have with me David Dilley, President and Chief Research Scientist of Global Weather Oscillations, Inc. You can find more information about what we're talking about with different slides, forecasts at globalweathercycles.com. Now, David also talks about hurricane predictions four years into the future, Earth-Moon-Sun alignments, and these are the things that we wanted to cover today, as well as warm water pulses into the Arctic that cause more sea ice or less sea ice, and overall longer-term cycles beyond the decadal cycles into the multi-century cycles that we're repeating as we speak, so we can get a good gauge looking into the future what our global weather patterns will be like based on past cycles that do repeat. So, David, I really thank you for joining me today. I know we're going to have a great conversation. Eighteen-year cycle. I think it's a great place to start. Yes, David, it certainly is. The Earth-Moon-Sun interactions are really a overlooked field. Everyone's hoeing in on the sun. And what I've found in my research during the past uh, 20, 25, 30 years, it's really the interactions of the Earth-Moon-Sun, uh, gravitational cycles of them. And these actually line up pretty good with the solar cycles also. But there are so many Earth-Moon-Sun-Lunar gravitational cycle patterns that uh, this should really be looked at because we have uh, many, many, many cycles. Now, basically... One thing that happens is the sun, of course, with the tilt of the earth from season to season, the sun goes from, in respect to the equator, minus 23.5 degrees, I think it is, south of the equator. Uh, that is their summer. Then during the northern hemisphere summer, it comes to plus 23.5 degrees of latitude. So that's down 23.5 and up 23.5. Now, the moon has a different cycle. It also, in relationship to the Earth's seasonal tilts, and the moon has its own monthly cycles and seasonal and yearly cycles. The moon, over the long-term period, 18 years, was a very famous 18 to 18.5-year cycle, will start at the beginning of the cycle. The moon, instead of 23.5 degrees up and down on the uh, sun, the moon will change from over a long-term pattern here to as much as 29 degrees above or below the equator and to as little as 17 to 18 degrees above or below the equator. That's quite different than the sun. And then uh, when they kind of meet up in alignment, then you get your syzygies, uh, very strong gravitational cycles that we'll talk about later. But when you do get a syzygy in, in alignment, the actual gravitational tug on the Earth can increase by as much as 47% above normal gravitational cycles. That's why in some coastal areas, you will get coastal flooding, ocean flooding, uh, low-lying coastal flooding during very specific strong new moons or high moons. The new moon is just as strong as the full moon. A lot of people don't understand that. But uh, the new moon you have to look at in the cycles also. So let's get back to the cycles in the moon. There's an 18 to 18.5 year cycle. And we'll start at the beginning. Let's say it's up there at 28, 29 degrees in the sky. This is looking at very strong cycles where 
very strong gravitational cycles where the Earth, Moon, Sun are closely aligned and or the proximity to Earth will increase the gravitational cycles. So here we are, day one. Uh, it's 28, 29 degrees in the Northern Hemisphere. Four years later, it'll be down in the Southern Hemisphere. Four-year pattern. Down in the Southern Hemisphere at maybe 26 degrees of latitude. Four years later, it'll be back to the Northern Hemisphere. That's a nine-year cycle. Uh, going back to the Northern Hemisphere it takes nine years to go from a northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere back to the northern hemisphere. Now, that very big peak that we talked about diminishes every nine years. Halfway through the pattern, the elevation in the sky will be closer to 17, 18 degrees of uh, elevation above the equator. Then finally, once it finishes the whole 18.5-year uh, period, it will be back high in the sky again at about 28, 29 degrees. So we're seeing in this, just this little pattern here, we're seeing four-year cycles, nine-year cycles, and 18-year cycles. The same cycle, if you stretch it out in time, actually goes out to longer cycles. Uh, same type of thing where it goes higher in the sky to lower in the sky. You can stretch it out to 72-year uh, cycles, out to even longer periods of cycles. And actually, the Earth's temperatures during the last, oh, let's say 600,000 years, the temperature plot where we have our global warming cycle interglacial period every 120,000 years or so, it, we had a high peak in it way back five, 600,000 years ago and a higher peak this time. The pattern looks just like this 18.5 year lunar cycle. So what it is is just a stretched out pattern of the 18 year uh, lunar cycle. So it's sort of a fractal of itself going up exponentially large or coming down exponentially small. That's yes. right. Okay. What I would ask then is when do these all lock in sync? When you're talking about at the, the high point, if you will, the peak at, say, 29 in the northern hemisphere, when does that lock with solar max? Or when does it, in the inverse, when the trough, if it's down southern hemisphere 26 degrees and it's at a solar min when do those two lock and how often do they lock together at the, both peaks exactly happening at the same time and that would be either on the 9 to 18 the 72 or going out into longer cycles at what point do these lock where you can start to see a relationship between the solar maximums and the locking of the upper peaks in these um, lunar cycles well actually these cycles uh, gravitationally lock in on fall, equinox, fall, spring, winter, and summer. You get your stronger patterns. That's where the Earth, Moon, Sun become closer in proximity to each other. That's because the Sun is crossing the equator, and the Moon has a better chance of uh, becoming in proximity to the Sun, the uh, elevation of the Sun. And what happens is uh, you'll have this proximity that's I just talked about about four times a year. You'll have pretty good proximity and stronger gravitational cycles. But what happens in the longer-term cycle is you get into years where instead of uh, happening maybe, like I said, on each uh, spring, winter, summer, fall, uh, that's four times a year, it'll stretch out where that cycle may go about three months in a row or four months in a row. 
And if uh, during the course of the year, instead of this occurring four months, it may occur almost eight months out of a year, this proximity where we have stronger gravitational pull. And this is where you come into play where you get stronger cycles in this. And this is actually what, what I've plotted on this graphic that you're looking at is the stronger cycles where it does come into play. It's coming into play pretty much on the whole pattern that I showed there during the 18.5-year pattern. But a lot of things occur on certain parts of the cycles. That's the thing. Certain uh, climate features uh, occur on certain patterns of it because of your latitude or longitude around the Earth. You get the changes in your climate cycles. Would you expect more tectonic and volcanic activity to be induced by these higher and more strong gravitational cycles? And can you peg that to any eruptions or earthquakes that have been measured over time to these plots that you're talking about and have mapped out already? Oh, definitely. I've done a uh, research on the California earthquakes. reason I did California is there's a very good historical record going back 200 years. So what I did, I looked at uh, one of my models, specific models, and I could track. And, and what I did, I plotted the uh, earthquakes, the only ones that were 6.0 or greater earthquakes. So I was looking at the stronger earthquakes. And I saw definite cycles in there on the gravitational cycles, and I could actually track a earthquake cycle up through time, where this cycle has maybe occurred three or four times during the past 200 years. You can track it right up through time, and because of that, I have a forecast on the website uh, available for the next big California earthquake. There are two strong cycles coming up in the 2020s. And one of them be in Southern California, one in Northern California. And the reason I could uh, say which Northern or Southern is because I tracked them up through, there are two different cycles I'm tracking. And one of the cycles for Southern California and one of the cycles is for Northern California. But the interesting thing about it is when the earthquakes occur in California, everyone would think, Okay, it's going to occur on the peak gravitational cycle, correct? Because you have the greatest gravitational pull. Well, what I've noticed is, and we have to look at is, on real strong gravitational cycles, the tug on the Earth can increase by as much as 47%, which is a great increase in the gravitational tug on the Earth. Now, the inner core of the Earth is essentially molten, hot, metallic metal. Well, that great tug can actually bulge, make a bulge in the inner core by about 1.5 kilometers. Now, that's a pretty good-sized bulge because up above the inner core, you go up a ways, and you have the plates. And the plates move a little bit. So if you have a bulge below the plates, the plates are going to have to bulge a little bit. And then... When the bulge goes away, you'd expect, okay, the plates will re, uh, relax. And what I noticed is the big earthquakes don't come on the greatest gravitational part of a cycle. It comes after the cycle has relaxed, which means the plates are relaxing, and then they slip, and you get an earthquake. And I noticed that also. I was looking at the lunisotal gravitational tidal forcing chart on the nine-year cycle, and what caught my attention right there was 1991 with the Pinatubo eruption 
and it falls exactly where you're talking about on the backside of the peak by about one year after that great gravitational pull. Coming down off that peak, it looks like it loosened up and then let go. And then also, if, if we're going to look down at Mount St. Helens, it came at the trough there. That very well could be. And actually, some of these cycles that are plotted, uh, you're looking at my cycle here, uh, you could do other gravitational plots using uh, a little bit different uh, power structures on how high the moon is in the uh, sky in relationship to proximity to the sun and the proximity to Earth. You can do it differently, and you'll get a power structure here that's about one year different. And a lot of people use one that's one year different. Uh, mine is off by one year, kind of backed up one year from uh, most of the cycles that are out there. But yes, that's what would probably uh, occur, like you said. It's lining up on there because that's the great tug on the inner core of the Earth. And one thing, and as long as we're talking about this now, let's jump to where I talk about uh, we've had five global warming cycles, actually six during the past 1,200 years. We have come off onto five global cooling cycles. What I have noticed on the global cooling cycles is once you get about 15 to 25 years into the global cooling cycle, you have a great VMI five or six volcano, such as Tambora. 1815. And what did Tambora do? You have no summer in 1816. It really disrupted the climate around the world in the Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere. Now, it makes sense that, yes, you would have increased really dramatic volcanic activity because of this great gravitational tug on the Earth being relaxed or increased. So what I noticed is on the five global cooling cycles, four out of the five had these big, huge volcanoes. And it's sort of a double whammy. You're going into real great global cooling, but then you get a huge volcano on top of it. And that even drives the stake further where it gets even colder, like in 1816. And that's kind of what we're looking at down the road. We're slipping into global cooling now. We can talk about it later. It, I, I say it actually began about four years ago. Uh, but it's going to come in earnest in about two years. So what we're looking at is, okay, maybe 15 years after that or so, or it could even be 10 years after that. We could very well have a year of no summer again here on Earth, and that could cause a huge disruption. When we talk about moving forward into the cooling climate, beyond what it would do for disruption in just regular transportation systems or the economy of a regional area, you have to take a look back at some of these larger eruptions, and they did absolutely wipe out cultures. If we go back into the late antique Little Ice Age, the volcanic eruptions at that time were so large, even though they happened in Asia, that it affected South America, Central America, specifically the Mayan culture they were studying at that time, why they suddenly had a drop off. But it was a full northern hemispheric episode again. So it could be just a single volcano that goes off that could have that much disruption in our modern agriculture systems, and with the just-in-time delivery systems that we have going on, that could spell disaster for people who need food delivered to a supermarket that comes every two or three days. But what happens if you don't grow food for an entire season? How much is really in the silos that can be pulled out? And then what kind of pricing push would that have if everybody really understands that this year there's none, zero coming out? 
And then next year will be less, obviously, because it just doesn't go from zero or from 100 to zero and then back up to 100 again in the next year. It's going to be a gradual build up back from that point. So it could take two, three years get to get back to the, the point of full agricultural productivity that we have. You know, going into these volcanic eruptions, it's a game changer. It's a kind of a wild card, as I call it, in this cooling cycle that we can expect. Well, that's for sure. And that's why I keep telling people that global cooling is much, much more dangerous than global warming ever would be. Global warming you can adapt to uh, actually uh, increases your crop range in a lot of areas. Global cooling, though, shrinks your crop range, and you could have huge crop failures in some of the agricultural belts. Uh, and all you need is a crop failure for one year. And in 1815, when Tambora erupted during the global cooling cycle, Tambora is actually in the Southern Hemisphere. So people would say, well, we're okay up here in the Northern Hemisphere. Well, it greatly affected the Northern Hemisphere. They had yellow snow in, in parts of Europe, potato famine, crop failure, 5, 10, 15 years following uh, Tambora. Almost one-third of Europe perished because of famine and disease and civil unrest. Back then, we only had 1 billion people to feed here on Earth, and now we have 7 billion people to feed. If we have a crop disruption, we're going to have major civil unrest. Yeah, that's to go without saying. That's a whole other contentious issue people talk about and say, no, it wouldn't happen because we can grow enough food in our own country. Well, if you're not growing food, well, it doesn't matter if it's in your own country or you import it. You're all in the same basket in the same boat together. That's why I talk about people needing to mitigate or at least learn how to you know, bring some of the agriculture indoors and learn how to grow some plants inside using different types of lighting systems. Electricity will still be up and running. And I talk about utilizing caves and growing mushrooms and greenhouses and things to protect your crops. Because if you literally had those inside a greenhouse protected environment, you could still grow some. And this would be extremely localized in neighborhoods or just local areas. But at that point, you're going to have to be taking care of yourself anyway. And the self-sufficiency, and I always talk about that so heavily, is these things are coming. It's not if it's going. It's now we're mapping it out as to which years it's going to happen. So you better be preparing in many ways other than just, you know, keep going to work every day and pretend like it's not going to happen. Hey, my retirement will be here in 35, 50 years. No problem. I can use my retirement money to buy food. No, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, that that's for sure. Because there's really two reasons why you have to look at being prepared. One is just the climate. If we do have this year of no summer somewhere down the road, like I said, maybe 15 years from now, 25 years from now, or what happens if it's only eight years from now, and we're not prepared and have enough food stored up. Most people in the big cities only have about two days of food in their refrigerator, and that's it. They're, they're done. They don't have any more food. But the good thing is we could grow food in the warmer climates to supply the rest of the world. But, of course, it takes time to plant additional crops. Meanwhile, you're going to have a shortage of food. And uh, because of shortage of food, you're going to have one country trying to get food from another country. And this can happen either through the climate situation here or through the situation that everyone's talking about, where the next big threat could even be the electromagnetic bomb that some countries may be looking at to uh, as a threat around the world. So there's two major things that could affect our food supply down the road, and we should be prepared. Even the Bible 
talks about saving your food crops, having a seven-year supply of food to get you through periods of drought. And we don't do that. We do not do that. Uh, we go from day to day or week to week. Yeah, and going back as well, that old phrase, the meek shall inherit the earth. And this is where you come right back into talking about tropical growing belts because predominantly across the equatorial regions or these really close to the equator countries, most of them are impoverished and uh, not developed economies. And when you talk about the meek, literally in economic terms, that's where all the food growing would be. And they would be the strong powerhouses and the bread baskets of the world where up in the north, where we traditionally have more developed economies, they would be the ones that would not be able to grow food relying on. And not, whoever has the food at that point controls society pretty much, because I think the food would even be more valuable than money and more valuable than energy at that point. I really firmly believe that food will be the most valuable commodity on our planet when it comes to that. Oh, that's for sure. And, and look what happened to Ireland and uh, parts of Europe after the Tambor in 1815 and the Year of No Summer in 1816. Uh, people started to migrate out of Europe for once but did not get sick and frail and, and perish. A lot of them uh, migrated, migrated to the United States and, and other areas. And that's what we'd see worldwide. But, you know, this is things that's going to come down the road. And what we have to look at is, okay, what really causes climate change in the first place? We have uh, one segment of the society here saying, well, man is causing climate change. We've never been this warm before, and carbon dioxide has never been this warm before, and this is all false. One thing we want to look at is global warming and global cooling ends and begins in the Arctic and the Antarctic so one thing I did want to touch on was the meltwater pulses, the pulses into the Arctic that you also have mapped out here on the cycles when uh, it seems to be very correlated to the amount of Arctic sea ice cover and the temperature of the water and the pulse going up into the Arctic. And you even have a chart for this right here. That's right. This was an article that I read in volume number 92, number 5, May 2011 in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. What they saw was they mapped out three warm pulses of North Atlantic water that were pulsing into the Arctic. And what caught my attention on the article was the first warm water pulse was in 1990. What they said, it goes into the Arctic, takes it 13 years to circulate around the Arctic, it goes up through the Ural Straits between Greenland and Ireland, that area, up into the Arctic Ocean. So it's called a warm water pulse that means North Atlantic. Well, in 1990, there's a warm pulse. Then in 1999, nine years later, there was a very warm pulse into the Arctic. Then nine years later, in 2008, another warm pulse, but not quite as warm. So the first one in 1990 was warm, and 2008 were warm, but the real warm one was in 1999. So what happens is when you get warm water pulsed up into the Arctic, the Arctic ice doesn't melt from the top down. The ice is submerged. There's no land in the Arctic. All the ice is really uh, submerged by 75 80%. The ice melts from the bottom up because of the warmer water. 
And when you have the ice melting, then you have more open water during the summer months in the Arctic. And then it takes longer for it to uh, freeze up and get extent in the winter. So if you have the less extent of ice, you have less cold air available in the Arctic. Once it starts freezing up again, like it did in uh, 2013 and 14 winters where the Arctic was recovering, we had much more cold air available and it came southward. And this is again happening this year where we've gone past the El Nino and the Arctic water is cooling down again and we're going to have another big ice extent. But back to the warm water pulses, I mentioned three of them, 1990, 1999, and 2008. That caught my eye. Gee, they're nine years apart. I put them onto my graphic, and what I saw was the pulse in 1990 came right at the peak of the Earth-Moon-Sun gravitational cycle, where the gravitational cycle, it was a high one, uh, about 26 degrees above the equator. It's a northern hemisphere cycle. So that was in 1990. Well, nine years later, wow, there it was, back to the northern hemisphere, high in the sky again, the gravitational cycle. Not quite as high, but it was about 22 degrees above the equator. And there it was again, 1999, nine years later, the very warm pulse in the Arctic. That's what caused the very warm next 12 years, that very warm pulse. Then nine years later, right on top of the gravitational cycle, and the gravitational cycle of the moon was about 26, 27 degrees above the equator. In 2008, they said there's another pulse coming into the Arctic, not as warm. So it takes that 13 years to cool down, to completely go away. Well, what's uh, 13 years from uh, 2008? That's 2021, year 2021. I keep talking about the year 2019 to 2020. That's when the real global cooling is going to be coming because that warm water pulse is going to be gone and the Arctic's going to freeze up like a solid rock. With that as well, then yes. these could be longer duration cycles that would be more powerful, that would push more water or make the water cooler themselves. Because I see the same things overlapping with these fractals of cycles. So if they can be mapped out into 200 plus year cycles, could there be a 200 plus years warm water or cool water pulse cycle that goes in that's actually overriding or even more powerful of a cycle that overlays on top of these smaller cycles? Well, as it relaxes, of course, then uh, the cold the water gets cut off, the warm water gets cut off. If you're not getting a pulse up in the Arctic on the next nine-year cycle, which would be in 2017 this year, if that's not a very warm pulse, if it's just a uh, pulse, then the Arctic's not going to warm up at all, and that's going to allow it to really uh, start freezing up solid. And I've noticed uh, during the past, since May, the high Arctic temperatures are running below normal. I saw this also back in the winters of 2013-14, same thing, running below normal from May until this period. And those two winters were cold. They were cold winters. Now, the prior time you had the cold air like that, where it ran below normal for such a long period during the summer, allowing big freeze-up, you had to go back in the 1970s to 1960s. So we're starting to get back into the cycles of the 1960s and 70s. This is why I'm saying global cooling actually began 
about four years ago in 2013. It just got disrupted by the very strong El Nino in 2015. That's all. That was just a a temporary stop. And now we're going to start going into the real global cooling right around 2019, 2020, as the Arctic starts to really freeze up. Now, you wanted to talk a little bit about a longer cycle. I talked about this very warm pulse nine-year cycle in 1999. What I have found is, okay, we're talking about nine-year pulses, and we've talked about 18-year cycles, 18 years and nine years and four years. There's a 72-year cycle. It looks very similar to the 18-year cycle, but there's a 72-year cycle. What's 72 years from 1999? 1927. It is highly likely that we had a very warm water pulse go into the Arctic right around 1927-1928. The whole decade in the 1930s was very warm. Yeah, Dust Bowl. That was the Dust Bowl era. Oh yeah, that's very warm. All global warming cycles have twin temperature peaks that last 10 to 15 years. 1930s and for us from uh, about the year 2000 to uh, 2012, 2013 or so. These are all natural cycles. We're right on the cycle and the pattern that we're supposed to be on. So back to the 72-year cycle. Okay, I just pointed out 1927. That was a very likely warm water pulse on that 72-year cycle. So we've seen this twice here, right? Now, what I've done on my long-term averaging of the Earth, Moon, Sun, uh, strength of the gravitational cycles, okay, on the 72-year pulse. I put it out in time, and what happens is when you have the 72-year pulse, you get the new moon and full moon on the long-term average kind of being on the same plane elevation-wise in the sky. Well, what happens on the long-term cycles, okay, this happened in, uh, in 1999. It happened in 1927. Then when you go back prior to that, and the way the cycle is formed, it skipped that next 72-year cycle. Then it came in again on the next one. This is why we have global warming cycles that come every 230 years, based on the 72-year cycle that skips a cycle. So you can plot us out exactly where we are now and where we're heading to into the future then based on prior cycles. And if we go back a step even further, let's take a further step back, From the 230-year cycle, where does that take us, 1,100 years? And then from there, if we take a step back off 1,100 years, how far back are we going? Because I noticed you had a chart here on the 1,100-year cycle that also encompasses and overlays all of these smaller cycles on top as well, encompassed in there as a matrix of smaller leading to larger that entwine into one larger cycle that all overlay in the same time frames. This is an extremely interesting cycle what happened was back, uh, well, right now, we're in a warm period. Then we uh, cooled down in mid-1800s. Well, we go back 1,100 years, and that's about 900 A.D. That was a peak of a very warm cycle. Go back another 1,100 years, and that was a peak of another very warm cycle. We go back another 1,100 years, and another 1,100 years, so on and so on. So we go back to about 6,600 years ago. That was when we came off the prior uh, glacial period, about 7,000 years ago. 
we were very warm back, much warmer than today, a very long extended warm period going about 2,000 years, very extended warm period, much warmer than today. There are reports there's 50% less ice in the Arctic at that time than today. And we have all these people out there saying, oh, this has never happened before. We don't have any ice up there in the Arctic today, and it's all going to be gone in a few years. Well, it was worse 7,000 years ago. And these cycles, as uh, we were saying on the graphic, is extremely warm 7,000 years ago. Then if we look at the 1,100-year cycles coming to today, each cycle is getting cooler and cooler and cooler. What we have to remember is we're 7,000 years removed already from the peak of the interglacial warm period. We're 7,000 years heading towards the next ice age. We're cooling down gradually here. And what we have today is not as warm as it was even a 1,000 years ago. What we have are temperatures right now on the twin warm peaks of 1930s and now, perfectly normal, perfectly normal for this type of cycle. There's no doubt about it. And as we slip into the global cooling cycle here, very shortly, I talked about that cycle. And actually, uh, if we skip to that other graphic that I have, the 230-year cycle, on the average, global cooling cycles come, or global warming cycles, either way, come every about 230 years. It can be as short as uh, 200 years or as long as 240 years between cycles. We had a global warming cycle back in the uh, 800s A.D. is extremely warm 7,000 years ago. Then if we look at the 1,100-year cycles coming to today, each cycle is getting cooler and cooler and cooler. What we have to remember is we're 7,000 years removed already from the peak of the interglacial warm period. We're 7,000 years heading towards the next ice age. We're cooling down gradually here. And what we have today is not as warm as it was even a 1,000 years ago. What we have are temperatures right now on the twin warm peaks of 1930s and now, perfectly normal, perfectly normal for this type of cycle. There's no doubt about it. And as we slip into the global cooling cycle here, very shortly I talked about that cycle. And actually, uh, if we skip to that other graphic that I have, the 230-year cycle, on the average... Global cooling cycles come, or global warming cycles, either way, come every about 230 years. It can be as short as uh, 200 years or as long as 240 years between cycles. We had a global warming cycle back in the uh, 800s A.D. Now, the global warming cycle, back about 950 to 1050 A.D., the Vikings settled Greenland in the 800s, 800s to 900s, because it was very much warmer back then than it is today. They settled there, and then they had to leave around 1100 AD as it slipped into a global cooling cycle. So anyway, I talked about a global warming cycle uh, that come about every 220, 30 years, back around 800 AD, uh, 1000 AD. Another one uh, came in around 1310 AD, twin temperature spikes in uh, 1310 and 1380. That's 70 years between spikes. Remember, I talked about 72-year cycle. Then another global warming cycle back in the 1500s. Twin temperature peaks uh, in 1525, 1570. That's only about 60 years between spikes. Then uh, global warming cycle in the 1700s. 
that ended as we had global cooling and then tambor that really put a spike in it and caused the year of no summer. So bees come just about every 230 years. Now, what I was showing on this particular graphic is when you start your global cooling, you're coming off a global warming cycle, and you start your global cooling cycle, your next global cooling cycle typically begins 230 years after the previous global cooling cycle began, 230 years. So our last global cooling cycle began in the year 1790, right around 1790. What's 230 added on to 1790? The year 2020. So we're 230 years from the beginning of the last global cooling cycle. Then I also talked about that warm water pulse that went into the Arctic in 2008. What's 13 years removed from that? 2021. And actually, the water would cool off a little bit before that. So we're looking, we've got two cycles there, looking right at 2020, right around 2020, 2019, for the beginning of our real drastic global cooling cycle. And are we ready for this as a planet? And how long will it last, though? That's another thing that I get a lot of people asking me because there's some astrophysicists coming out showing that we're going to get a twin fall back in temperature. We're going to reach a, a bottom. We're going to spring up a tiny bit, and then we're going to fall back off in temperature. This is going to extend out until 2060 or so. I was just curious what you thought on the length of time as in the cooling before we start to see some respite and rebound in temperatures that will bring our global agriculture back to it won't be similar today because we're not going to get that warm again on this next cycle. I think this is a high peak that was anomalous anyway. But when can you see any respite and rebound into temperatures that would allow us to have global agriculture again to feed enough 8 billion people? Well, the global cooling cycle we're going into, the worst part of it will be in the uh, late 2020s through the 2040s to 2050s. And sometimes it takes as much as 50 years before you hit the bottom of it. Well, actually, the one that ended around 1570, that didn't bottom out until almost 1725. That was in the Little Ice Age. That took almost 120 years or so to bottom out. Normally, they bottom out about 50, 60 years. This one, I think this next one, when you look at the 230-year cycle one I have on here, you're seeing the same type of wavelength as you do on the 18.5-year lunar cycle where you have the big peak on the left, big peak on the right, and smaller cycles in the middle. So my belief is that we won't get go into the deepest, deepest global cooling cycle on this one. We'll have another global warming cycle after this, and then that will do the big bottom peak going into the next little ice age. So that may be 230 years away yet on really going down real bad. But this one will be a global cooling cycle It'll go deep uh, for about 50 years and then start recovering. So the temperature drop in Celsius degrees, what kind of temperature drop would you expect with something like this? That's, yeah, over the uh, next 50 years, are you thinking about half a degree drop, a 1C drop, one and a half? Over the next 50 years, and I was just curious on that myself as a personal, comparatively to the research I've done, I'm trying to match up as many data points as I can because I'm always trying to learn new information every day as much as I can. Well, instead of putting it in actual degrees, I want to put it into uh, kind of a format people can 
relate to, and that's if they can remember how it was in the 1950s and 60s. I can. 50s and 60s were very cold here in the United States, very cold. We are now slipping into that. That's what we're going to see in the 2020s, is the same type of weather we had in the 50s and 60s, 1950s and 60s. And uh, then we'll probably slip even a little bit colder to be more like what we were about uh, 1850 to 1900. So that's colder. I don't believe we're going to get as bad as we were in 1816, where we had the year no summer. Or if we do, it'll just be briefly with a big uh, VMI 5-6 volcano. But it's not going to be as cold as it was in the 1400s and the 1600s. It's it's not the little ice age coming uh, on this one. It's more like saying the temperatures in the 1950s and 60s and also uh, in the last half of the 1800s. So this is considerably colder than what we've had 15, 20 years. 1950s and 60s were very cold. And I wonder how the uh, global warming crowd is going to try to explain away all these consistently cooling temperatures. Okay, they can explain away one anomalous season as X factor, if you will. But when it happens for the second year and then the third year in a row, I wonder how many years this is going to take before people actually start to change their mind frame that it's something other than a trace gas that's causing these problems. And what point do people wake up and really start looking at the information that you've provided? And there's different cycles that drive. And we're just such a small planet here out from the sun and something that's a million times larger than us. And there's other celestial bodies outside of our solar system all connecting. And there's so much more effect to our planet than just us here with CO2. And I wonder how long it'll be before people notice that. It'll take a number of years. Uh, one thing we're, they're going to be seeing here once 2019, 2020 comes around, even this winter is going to be very cold, is there are going to be navigation problems in the Great Lakes. St. Lawrence River through the Great Lakes, and you get a lot of shipping in that area, and you freeze that area up and you have problems. They, and they had problems back in the 60s and 70s in that area. And we're going to be back to that. If they have those problems up there for about three, four years, they're going to start thinking, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? It's going to take three to four years. Now, we could also get colder by the late 2020s, where there was a point back in, I think it was late 1800s, the melt of the Chesapeake Bay froze over. Can you imagine that? So you'd even be disrupting navigation in the Chesapeake Bay area. You get about four bad winters in a row, and I think it'll be sunk in that, hey, okay, we have to change what we're talking about. But what's going to happen is they're going to flip the coin, twist it around, and and they're going to start putting out uh, research saying, oh, we were incorrect. Uh, Carbon dioxide actually causes cooling, is what they're going to say. They'll just flip it around to try to save face. Going back to the cold winter again with disrupting shipping, 2013-14, you know, they had to have additional icebreakers to bring the traffic through, and there were so many ships stuck out there, and they had to wait until the thaw to actually move those vessels around. And if we're going to talk about an even cooler winter this winter coming up, and, you know, that literature, I have already started to see that, not just drip-fed, but actually sprinkled in already with a sprinkler on high volume 
of these types of research papers coming out saying, oh, it actually, global warming causes global cooling because it has all these other effects, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, that are now causing cooling. And you're already starting to see that. Yeah, this year I would also imagine some delayed shipping into the Great Lakes ports as we saw back in 13, 14 winter. Oh, I, I'm sure we will, 2013, 14. I'm looking for a similar winter to the 2014 winter. That was a winter, I believe, that caused the shipping problems in the St. Lawrence to the Great Lakes. It should be similar this year. Europe was warm, however, and I'm, I'm actually looking for Europe to possibly have a uh, nasty winter. I was looking at their cycles, and they're within a year of having a cyclical, very nasty winter in Great Britain over through parts of Europe. And it could come as early as this year, and that will start to wake them up also. Starting to see in the Southern Hemisphere, down in Australia, it's supposed to be getting into warmer temperatures throughout Victoria. Parts of New South Wales are getting record snowfall. The ski season has extended for the second year in a row. Tasmania snowed almost all the way down to the beaches. They got snow down to 100 meters, and this is September their average temperature is around 2022 right now. And then also in Australia, in the south there, absolutely everybody's talking about how cold it is, yet the mainstream media comes out and said, oh, it's a record warm winter. But literally, the citizens are understanding with their own eyes that it was not a record warm winter, that it's still cold even this late in the season. So the southern hemisphere is starting to see this cooler pattern emerging. It seems like one step ahead of the northern hemisphere this year, like one season ahead of the cooling that's occurring in the north. Well, that's right. They would be one season ahead because it's uh, their winter down there. And that's a pretty good hint on what's going to happen up here. And I, I've already seen that in the uh, high Arctic, how it's cooling down. So it is coming. And all of this is cyclical. And you want to talk briefly about hurricanes. And I would love to uh, inject a couple of things on here because there's already media reports out there that article in today's paper of a senator saying, oh, we have to stop climate change because it's causing all these nasty hurricanes. And I'd like to talk about this because it is very cyclical. This is one thing we do in our business of Global Weather Oscillations Incorporated. We developed climate pulse technology based on interactions of the Earth, Moon, Sun. And through this technology, we can track hurricane cycles. We can actually track individual hurricanes through time from 1800s right up until now and, and four years into the future through cycles natural cycles so what we've seen in the past occurs in the future regardless of the temperatures because we've had very strong hurricanes uh, for example in florida yes we just had very strong hurricane irma well it's really a category three they had a Category 4 come in there in 1921 when it was very cold. Donna, Category 3, came in in 1960 uh, in sort of the same location. And there's been numerous large hurricanes, 4s and 5s, during the cold weather periods that have hit the area. So they occur in cycles. and I, I, I track the stronger cycles up through time is what I do. And I noticed this year, when I put out the press release in February for this year's hurricane outlook, preseason outlook, and first of all, I'd like to say here at Global Weather Oscillations, we've done this 10 years in a row. We've been correct 10 years in a row. 
other organizations, leading organizations, which I won't mention their name, but it's organizations that the press turn to and they give them the headlines, they've been correct only about 30 to 40% of the time during the past 10 years. But they're the ones that get the headlines. Well, this year on our press release, our headline was the most dangerous and costliest hurricane season since 04, 2004. We called for well above normal hurricane activity and six name storms landfalls for the United States. All the other preseason uh, predictions when they first came out were calling for an average season, and no one else predicts landfalls. We're the only ones that do it because we're the only ones that have climate pulse technology. So we've been spot on. Texas, for example, normally, typically goes through, historically since the 1800s, they've had about seven quiet periods of no hurricanes. Their quiet periods typically go eight to ten years. Well, this year was year number nine, and we could see right on the climate pulse technology that they could very well break out of their quiet period this year, and we had it in, in the forecast. So what did they get? Hurricane Harvey. This year, Florida was in a quiet period. Florida has quiet periods that extend out 10 to 12 years. This year was year number 12. Last hurricane was in 2005. And we could see this right on our climate pulse technology. So this year, right in our zone forecast for South Florida, we predicted a Category 4 hurricane would make landfall in the South Peninsula of Florida and move northward. And Irma did. And we also, using the cycles, predicted the first hurricane in 25 years for New England. Well, right now, uh, today, we have Hurricane Jose that's posed to possibly give Cape Cod hurricane force winds in a few days. So this is what we use, uh, all cyclical data. We've seen strong hurricane cycles during periods of colder temperatures. Nothing to do, really, with uh, climate change. Even the National Hurricane Center will not say anything about it. They agree that the hurricane cycles are cyclical, and the climate is not really making changes. No one's found any connection between global warming and the hurricane activity that's happened or the strength of hurricanes or the frequency of hurricanes. But it's showing up in newspaper articles, and some of these senators are are starting to get on the bandwagon because they want to tie it into climate change. And this is something we have to get the word out to people that this is untrue. It's just the natural cycles. I want to throw something a little strange at you, if I may. You're talking about cycles, and these exact dates rang something to me when you were talking here. I'm wondering if Al Gore and their PR staff knows about these same cycles, but they're keeping them hidden to themselves because the release dates of both of their movies are falling on these exact cycles when there's going to be extreme weather that then they can claim that it's related to global warming. And it's just quirky that this year the new movie from their crew was released and it's coming into this time when we're expecting tumultuous weather. If you're forecasting these hurricanes, maybe they're also working off the same cycles but not putting it out in the public. And then when we go back to 2006 and 7, again, 2006, Inconvenient Truth, 
were coming at that rate, same one year at the beginning of the year, extreme weather at that time too. So it's almost as if they're releasing these movies at these exact same times that you're also forecasting with extreme weather, hurricane landings, which then they can blame on CO2. Is it coincidental or is it purposeful? Well, I really do believe that they're smarter than what we want to make them out to be. They know what's going on. It's all tied up in the politics and energy and their agendas. But they do know what's going on. It's just the character of the people that do anything to make money. I hate to say that, but that's pretty much what it is. They're going to stick to their agendas until they're made to stop. And the only way they're going to be made to stop is uh, if we have four or five nasty cold winters in a row and they're going to have to rethink a little bit. I think right now with their movies coming out and all, they're trying to milk it knowing that the ending is coming. So they're milking it. Yeah, but if you can predict with such accuracy with your hurricane forecasting like you've done right on the money when others aren't, there has to be something to this with the mathematics and, you know, the ancient cultures across the planet all believed in cyclical time and cyclical patterns. And it's just as part of our, you know, human history that we know about cycles, we believe in cycles. All cultures in at least several thousand years ago believed in cycles. And then we come to today and somehow it's just linear time and there's no cycles involved. I just can't see how that's is being overlooked and missed with your accurate predictions and knowing what's coming forward with the cooling that we can talk about. And here, they're not even debating it in the media or even talking about it and telling people, you know what, this cycle's coming again, or it could come. Just like the hurricane, it could make landfall over here. You might want to get prepared. They're not even talking about it in the media. They're trying to rake you under the bus with your reputation and trying to stop the discourse right there because they don't really want this talked about. But if it's a possibility of these cycles happening, as we all know, at least they should talk about it in the media. So some people who would like to prepare, and that's the reason I want you to get your message out, is I actually know and believe what you're doing is the correct methodology to it. You are predicting the cycles through past cycles to forecast the future, and that is truly the way our climate moves. It's not what we add to it. It's cycles. The thing is, any studies of natural cycles have been suppressed by the grant systems, the universities around the world. Since about the mid-1990s, most of the grants, almost entirely, have been for human-induced climate change. You could not get a grant to study natural cycles. I've had discussions with former heads of science departments in universities that could finally speak out because they're retired, and they said, no, uh, when you apply for a grant, the grants are worded in such a way that you have to, your results have to provide something towards the end result of what the grant wants, such as connection to human-induced connection to climate change or something. So they could not get a grant to study what I'm studying here. The natural cycles are really studied by the private sector because the universities just can't do it. And because of that, the universities want to keep the natural cycle part of it quiet so that they can continue to get their grants to study human-induced global warming. It's their bread and butter. They know which side of the bread is buttered. Perfect example is uh, I was scheduled to talk at an institute in Maine, state of Maine, 
and it was advertised by the Institute for over a month. Now, I told the Institute, I said, uh, well, you do know that I'm going to be talking on natural cycles, right? I, I put it right up front because I didn't want any problems. And they said, yeah, well, that's okay. Well, three days before my talk, I noticed three people from the University of Maine on our website. The next morning, we received an email. My talk had been canceled. So there's a media outlet here in Maine that got a hold of the president of the institute and asked him what happened. And it was very curious. He's, and he was honest. And he said, well, uh, we had a call from the University of Maine, and they felt that some people in the, in the audience would feel uncomfortable hearing what you have to say about natural cycles. So that was the University of Maine trying to protect their grant system and to really censor the other side. When you talk about who gets airtime or also print time in major mainstream publications, it comes down to it's the same universities. Of course, they get the press releases with the new information that was supposedly found about global warming effect this or global warming effect that. And then it's all over the paper's front page because they're the ones that are supposedly pushing this agenda. But people like yourself, where's your airtime coming in comparatively? I mean, what percentage are you getting? One one tenth of one percent of the press time or actually press space in a publication of what a university's findings would be compared to your hurricane forecast? Let's use that as an example. When you put out your press release for the hurricane forecast, calling and targeting and pinpointing what you did this year, how many publications nationwide picked that up and published you compared to what they did with, uh, say, National Hurricane Center or something like this, just to pulling a name out of a hat here because these are just the ones that are every year. You hear their forecasts coming again and again, but they get front page every single time for a whole week. They're on every program. They make little videos to put it up inside, like Weather Channel and all these kind of things. But where were you in this whole, what was your total uh, exposure compared to something like that? Oh, half of a percent, maybe. Uh, uh, do the press release, it gets online on the uh, the network, but not the media networks. It doesn't get publicized very much in the large publications. It does make it into insurance journals and into some smaller publications. It, it gets around and about, but it does not get any headlines as far as television, as far as the large newspapers. It goes to them, but they don't print it because it didn't come from the National Hurricane Center, NOAA, or Colorado State. Those two entities receive, as you just indicated, headlines for a week, interviews on TV and radio, just headlines. Well, Colorado State has only been correct three out of the past 10 years. The Hurricane Center has only been correct about three to four times out of the past 10 years. They were incorrect this year. Their first forecast this year called for a near-normal season. 11 to 14 named storms, something like that. And then these entities, they update their forecasts every month. They update it again in June, July, August, September. You can't call it a preseason forecast anymore because the season begins June 1st. 
So by the time they issue their last forecast in August, they pretty much have it right by that time because the season is well peaked. And actually, I think the Hurricane Center just came out with one two weeks ago, upping their forecast to 16 to 19 named storms. But this was around September 1st. Now, when the season is over, they're probably going to say, well, we were correct because we had 16, 17 storms or something like that. They're going to say they were correct. Well, no, when you go back to May, when it's the preseason forecast, they were incorrect. And this is what I look at on the preseason forecast for verification. I look at all the forecast uh, organizations out there, and the preseason forecast means preseason. That's a forecast before the season, not during the season. The things that have gone on with temperature data manipulation coming out and the way that they do tweak data and try to erase warmer temperatures in the past to show a linear trend going forward. So the whole manipulation of data it doesn't matter if it's from a forecast of hurricane seasons or actually temperature data. You can see that it's being manipulated and tweaked the entire spectrum of what can be changed to show and fit a pattern of, hey, look at us, we're the experts, we always get it correct. And then the way that they've changed the past to reflect this current agenda of its global warming is continually warming comparatively. So you get into this whole gray area and kind of Alice in Wonderland type of they seem to be still getting the headlines, although they're doing the manipulation being caught every single year now, say, since the last three years of manipulating something, red-handed, caught, yet they still get the headlines. So it makes no sense to me. It's got to be an agenda driving forward or else they still wouldn't be getting such headlines, even after all the scandals. And not only the NOAA scandals, but what's happening down with the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia, their algorithms on their temperature stations were set that if it went below 10 degrees Celsius, anything below that wouldn't be registered. So let's say it went to 11.2 Celsius below zero, it would stop and peg at 10 C below. So you're missing the other, whatever it might have been, 10 C degree or full degrees below that mark then. So then they can show that it's not really cooling. Jennifer Morrissey had noticed that the temperature station data that she had received live feed was quite different, and they had erased it and tried to change it, and they tried to cover it up, and they were caught, and it became a huge uh -huh. scandal. And you don't realize how many temperature stations the entire network was done like this. And more people haven't woken up by now with all this information available on the Internet. Why is everybody still keeping their heads in the sand? I just... Well, it's really the media. The media goes to their known sources, this has been talked about on some of the talk shows on, on television, and I agree with it that the media nowadays, because of the Internet, the media is actually lazy. They do not do their own research to speak of. Instead, they just pass around what they've heard somewhere else, and most of what they've heard is incorrect. But they keep passing it around as being the truth. Uh, it's just laziness. A perfect example, and I'm sure you've heard about this, but 97% consensus by all scientists. Say I have. Everybody has. The Obama administration was flipping up at 97% right up until the end. And I think you still hear it out there occasionally. But that came from John Cook at the University of Queensland in Australia. What he did, he looked at about 12,000 abstracts from papers that mentioned climate change. So he wanted to see what the abstracts said. Well, out of the 12,000 abstracts, 
about 33% of them said that human activity is the primary cause for climate change. Human activity. 33% of it. So what he did was he sent out a letter to the 33% saying, will you endorse the human activity causing it? And 97% of the 33% wrote back endorsing it. That's where the 97% came from. It's 97% of 33%. Where in actuality, the other 8,000 papers, research papers, had no opinion on climate change or found no connection to human activity. But they're still throwing out 97%. Now, Dr. John Coleman, founder of the Weather Channel, he did his own poll and what he found was 15% of meteorologists say that climate change is mostly human-induced. That's only 15%. 85% said it was mainly natural cycles, maybe some human activity in there, but mainly natural cycles. But that 97% keeps getting thrown out, and the people in the government are still throwing out, out because they don't know the truth. It's a hearsay and they're not doing the research to find out the truth, and the media is not doing the research to find the truth either. Yeah, so I did look into John's work. I actually did a, a video on that. And the thing for me was also there was no big headline coverage on that, where we keep routinely seeing still the 97% in large publications. But his brand-new research citing the 15% and that all that work he did and amazing graphs and charts and all the meteorologist that he interviewed, that still didn't make even one-fifth of one-eighth of a percent of the news that the regular 97% still makes throughout. It's just, you know, it's, it's a biased agenda we're pushed into still to this day, and that's why I'm so happy, you know, we had a chance to talk tonight so you can bring out some of your ideas here. And uh, leaving on that, because we could continue to talk for hours and hours about this, but is there any last couple things you'd like to, to talk about here? The floor is open for you. Well, my biggest thought is we need to get the word out on natural cycles. That's the big word to get out. Our climate pulse technology pinpoints much of what's going on. Climate change is definitely cyclical. We're definitely heading into a global cooling cycle, dangerous global cooling cycle, especially having 7 billion people on Earth now. We also need to get the correct word out there, get the facts out so that people understand the facts and we need to override all the false narrative that's out there. So that that's the main thing I'd like to say is we just need uh, to make a lot of changes here to educate people. And this is what I'm trying to do when I'm interviewed. I, I'm trying to educate people when I do talks, do my webinars, it's to educate people for the truth. I just want people to come to my videos, uh, to the website, learn the truth, and prepare for the future, which is global cooling.